I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Olena Haba, come on down! the next contestant on You Trusted Trump. Trump's lawyer and spokesmodel, the one who couldn't tell the difference between Judge Ryan Hart and actor Judge Ryan Hold and her law firm were sanctioned $937,989.39 by a federal judge in Florida last night for being the ones stupid enough to file for Donald Trump a frivolous RICO lawsuit against Hillary Clinton in what was obviously a political stunt. Judge Donald M. Middlebrooks writes, quote, this case should never have been brought. Its inadequacy as a legal claim was evident from the start. No reasonable lawyer would have filed it, intended for a political purpose. None of the counts of the amended complaint stated a cognizable legal claim. Oh, Alina Haba, you lose. Like everybody who comes in contact with Trump, he abuses the law, but you pay the $937,989.39. Thanks for playing. You trusted Trump. Have a nice day. I have fallen for it before, and so have you, so I am not going to tell you that Trump jumped a shark last night. He may now rail against Judge Middlebrooks. He may even defend Alina Haba. Since the judge said the sanction was against Haba and Trump, he might even promise to pay half of it and then instead send her a commemorative Donald Trump 45th commemorative presidential pure gold trillion dollar commemorative coin suitable for framing. Note, coin is not gold but made out of compressed bird feces. Color of lead paint sprayed on gold coin is gold. But it didn't happen to him, so one way or the other he'll just skate past it. 
However, Trump did seem to hit some kind of wall on social media yesterday. Quote, the fake news says, I am not campaigning very hard. I say they are stupid. Ooh, stupid. You left out poopy pants. I say they are stupid and poopy pants. Do not fear many giant rallies and other events coming up soon. And then invoking the instruction for his mob to come to Washington for the rally and coup attempt of January 6th, it will all be wild and exciting. But the point of the post was for Trump to have to deny he was guilty of being boring. For nearly eight years, we have looked for the antidote to Trump, the emergency exit, and he just confessed as to what it is. He's gotten his roll of stamps and begun to mail it in. The fake news says I am not campaigning very hard. He is clearly terrified of being perceived as boring. He confirmed that in a later diatribe directed against the use of the term big lie and included another threat and then... He seemed to take a nap in the middle of his post. First, here's the threat. He claimed it's, quote, harder and harder to use the term big lie anymore. It actually angers people to do very bad things. And notice here Trump has mistaken the word anger for the word inspire or maybe cause, inspire or cause them to do very bad things. He's claiming if we all keep saying big lie, his scum will get violent. Quoting again, the radical left should be careful in its use of that ridiculous term. Then a sentence in which he misspells stolen and then anticlimax, petering out. Quote, the unselect committee of political hacks and thugs refused to discuss it. And so it goes. So it goes. 1979's most popular phrase for denoting a shrug of indifference or acceptance? An emoji in three words? That'll inspire the cult. So it goes, Beulah. Do you see my president? He's inspired action. America, let's make new hats. Trump 2024. So it goes. And if the boring doesn't get Trump, it's possible the sloppy will. The Supreme Court has just announced it is not able to find out who the leaker was on the Roe v. Wade scandal, he also wrote. They'll never find out, and it's important that they do. So go to the reporter and ask him slash her who it was. If not given the answer, put whoever in jail. Until the answer is given, you might add the publisher and editor to the list. Now, from Trump world's perspective, that sounds all very nice and above board. He suggested this before about reporters, but he's also always been very specific. Nothing as general as just referring to leakers and put whoever in jail. What Trump has managed to do here is to propose simply looking at a crime involving government documents or information, finding their recipient and jailing them without indictment, trial or conviction, which you could then also do, say, in the case of uh, nuclear and other top secret documents stolen and found at, uh, say, Mar-a-Lago with their recipient. Per Trump's logic, the next person you could go to and ask him, her, who it was, and put whoever in jail until the answer is given, the next person you could jail without indictment, trial, or conviction is Donald Trump. Trump from jail 2024! So it goes! 
What's particularly interesting in this new Trumpian legal or extra-legal theory, just jail suspects and witnesses, like Trump, is that the case he's referring to had its own extra-legal twist. Last week, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Supreme Court Marshall's report had narrowed it down to a small number of suspects, including several law clerks, but had yet to figure out which one did the leak. There was a leak about the investigation of the leak. Yesterday, as you know, the Marshall's report was issued, concluding evidently for good that we'll just never know, which is too bad because it was probably a crime. Which leads to the next question, which was nearly universally overlooked in the coverage. Namely, if there was a crime, how come the Supreme Court got to investigate it? If there's a crime, well, why wasn't the turned over to the FBI? Or at least the local U.S. attorney or even the D.C. attorney general? Or how about this? If the Supreme Court did investigate the Supreme Court and couldn't figure out who committed this likely crime and leaked about it, maybe then have the FBI or the U.S. attorney investigate. Unless you didn't really want to publicly identify the leaker, because publicly identifying the leaker in the Supreme Court might cause, uh, I don't know, or force uh, a Supreme Court justice to resign, maybe? I'll confess I spent part of yesterday waiting to hear that Congressman George Santos had claimed that he had leaked it. Oh, which reminds me. Drag, the 1967 number one hit from the Buckinghams, recently covered by Congressman George Santos. Thank you again, Nancy Faust. We must give Santos credit for doing the seemingly impossible. Each day, he achieves the proverbial new high in low. For the first time yesterday, he responded to one of the, oh, what is it, 300 credible claims out there that he's lied about something or altered or omitted something from his own life. And the one he picked to respond to first, quote, the most recent obsession from the media claiming that I am a drag queen or, quote, performed as a drag queen is categorically false. Now, you'll notice that in there, there is nothing denying that that is him on the videotape from the 2008 Brazilian Drag Queen Festival, nor denying that that is him in the 2008 photo next to Yulo Rochard, or anything denying that he used the name Katara Ravache. He denies he is a drag queen, is as in currently, and he denies he, quote, performed as in performed past tense competed in the past. And if that were not the definition of threading the needle, two hours later came the next tweet, the second response, George is a little behind on his scandals, about the story of poor Sapphire, the dog. The reports that I would let a dog die is shocking and insane. Once again, there's no claim of innocence here. Just some misdirection. The definition of a non-denial denial. Yeah, those reports are shocking and insane, George. As are you. And nowhere does he say he didn't do it. And talk about shocking and insane. Two sentences later came an insanely Freudian slip. Over the past 24 hours, I have received pictures of dogs I helped reduce 
throughout the years. Santos later deleted that tweet and replaced it with one in which reduce becomes rescue. For this last month, the month of George Santos, I have wondered what my late friend and inspiration, another George, George Carlin, would have made of him. Probably not much, to be honest. George probably would not have been surprised. But I invoked him, and there he appeared in one final story. We learned yesterday that three active service Marines working in intelligence were among those who stormed the Capitol during the coup attempt. They were identified from a social media post made by one of them. They were arrested Wednesday. It was revealed yesterday. In an Instagram chat, one of them, Micah Coomer, told another participant, quote, everything in this country is corrupt. We honestly need a fresh restart. I'm waiting for the boogaloo. What, the other person asked, is a boogaloo? Coomer answered, Civil War II. Ah, Civil War II electric boogaloo. This Marine Coomer was not just in intelligence. He was a systems engineer in marine intelligence and reconnaissance systems. And I know I'll sleep better in my bed tonight knowing that such heroes are protecting us here in America. Of course, I'll only sleep for about eight minutes, but still... And yes, the arrests prove once again that besides what little George Carlin did not see and assail in his lifetime, everything else he saw coming. After he ditched the suit and tie in the CBS summer replacement TV series, one of George's first true insurrectionist observations was, the term jumbo shrimp has always amazed me. What is a jumbo shrimp? I mean, it's like military intelligence. Of course, Groucho Marx seems to have brought up the oxymoron military intelligence a little bit before George did, and so did Senator Sam Irvin of Watergate Committee fame, but in 1971. And there was a British World War I general who was apparently the first to use it, and also... Doctor Who? Still ahead, that Pride Night disaster in the National Hockey League, the team has doubled down to defend the guy who hid behind his homophobic pro-Putin religion. Rare bipartisanship from the Worst Persons Committee, a Republican governor and a Democratic governor, make it this time, and Fridays with Thurber, of spies and string beans and falling asleep on the train, the lady on 142. That's next, this is Countdown. I am the ferryman in the shadows of the afterlife the ferryman of souls guides america's most influential spirits to their eternal rest where are you taking me are you death this road is not on any map how much for a ticket all i ask for in payment is a tale i don't know who got to kennedy first and the devastation those first bombs caused i've never been to hell but i know intimately the hymns of the damned all 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. And still ahead on Countdown, when sports outfits do not address controversies caused by religious bigots in their employ, this is what happens. NBC Sports has another Tony Dungy controversy, and the NHL has another day of its self-created, no, hockey isn't for everyone after all, is it, controversy. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. The New York City pound is jammed yet again. Uptown, a pity, arrived there just Wednesday, yet they are already ready to kill him as soon as tomorrow. This is the excuse. His humans dumped him there to die because they were moving. New place, they say. No pets allowed. So, Uptown, thanks for four years of love and friendship. You're dead. At age four, he's terrified and alone, and nobody's expecting him to be adopted and go on a nice walk this afternoon with the kids. But he lived without incident with a family for four years. He's clearly not untrainable. What we need is pledges to defray the costs of a rescue outfit, taking him and retraining him and finding him a home, which will be a lot easier if he's not dead, nor living in terror that the humans around him are about to kill him. You can find Uptown on my Twitter feed. Pledge if you can. Retweet if you can't. I thank you. And Uptown thanks you. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown 
with Keith Olbermann. In sports, it had been a while since NBC Sports, another one of my alma maters, had its work overshadowed by a Tony Dungy controversy. Then, Wednesday morning, the football night in America analyst and former Indianapolis Colts head coach tweeted, Some school districts are putting litter boxes in the school bathrooms for students who identify as cats. Very important to address every student's needs. I worked with Dungy at NBC, and while he tended to leave his very bizarre beliefs outside the studio, he was uniformly condescending and holier-than-thou, and outside of football topics, just not bright. The litter box story, of course, has been debunked to those people who needed it debunked, those people with IQs under 75, Joe Rogan, Lauren Boebert, Tony Dungy, who believed it. Its origins also are tragic. In the Colorado School District, in which Columbine is located, they do keep cat litter in some classrooms there for the kids in case the kids are stuck in the classrooms during another mass shooting. Tony Dungy has now deleted his tweet. Now it is time for NBC, which has seen Dungy slam a gay football player as a, quote, distraction, railed against same-sex parenting, and mocked people who suggested that if there is a god, maybe it's a woman. It's time for NBC to delete Tony Dungy's contract. Because as NBC Sports already knows, and the National Hockey League may be about to find out, if you let a controversy fester, it will soon take over your entire reputation. In many eyes, NBC's football night in America is Tony Dungy's bigotry and then some games. The NHL may soon become its disaster of Philadelphia Pride Night and nothing else, and may earn that title the National Hypocrisy League. The Philadelphia coach, John Tortorella, yesterday doubled down on his defense of a player who hid behind his violent homophobic religion as an excuse for refusing to join his teammates in a pregame skate, wearing uniforms that bore no reference to Pride Night, no reference to gay people, no reference to tolerance, nor anything different than the usual uniform except that the letters of their names and numerals of their uniform numbers were in rainbow rather than in white. The player's name is Ivan Provorov, and he said his religion, Russian Orthodox, was why he refused to wear the uniform for 10 minutes that he respects everyone's choice, and this was his choice. Provy did nothing wrong, said the coach Tortorella yesterday, his second day defending him. Just because you don't agree with his decision doesn't mean he did anything wrong. Provy's not out there banging a drum against Pride Night. I respect the organization, how they handled themselves here because they went about their business, and I thought it was a great night, Pride Night. Unfortunately, the religion that Provorov used as his excuse for this is, in fact, banging a drum and specifically against Pride Night. Its leaders have openly and recently encouraged Russia's attack on Ukraine and specifically cited as an excuse for it the fact that Ukraine has pride parades. Russian Orthodox is a homophobic religion. It is utterly politic. It is utterly dedicated to maintaining the Russian dictatorship of Vladimir Putin, and it is utterly dedicated to bombing Ukrainian civilians in their homes because they do things like Pride Night, which Ivan Provorov refused to participate in for religious reasons. This seems open and shut. The shut part should be Coach John Tortorella's big mouth. 
He either does not know about Provorov's religion's choice on the subject of killing people who support the LGBTQ community and invading their country, or he doesn't care about it. And the NHL had better step in, or its Philadelphia franchise, which has not been competitive for, oh, 47 seasons, will become known for this and only this, and the National Hypocrisy League will have earned itself an even rougher new name for that acronym, the National Homophobia League. Coming up Fridays with Thurber. Suspense, mystery, spies, and what happens when you fall asleep on a train? The Lady on 142. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, our latest New York governor, Kathy Hochul, What do you do when you barely win election as a Democrat in a heavily Democratic state? You stick with the Democrats who voted you in and try to bring back the ones who sensed you were a disloyal fraud? Not if you're Kathy Hochul. The state needs a new chief judge of the Court of Appeals, so naturally the governor chose Hector LaSalle, who has carefully built himself a reputation as anti-union and anti-abortion. A state Senate committee had to approve LaSalle's nomination before it moved to a vote by the full New York State Senate. It did not approve it. It voted 10 to 9 against LaSalle. The 9 yes votes were from Republicans. The 10 no votes were from Democrats. The Democrats are in charge in New York State. So what did the governor, a Democrat, do when the members of her own party were emphatically telling her she had screwed up? Nominate somebody else, a liberal, a moderate? No, she says she may go to court to sue the Senate to bypass the Senate committee and force a vote by the full Senate on her judge. This guy, LaSalle. Prediction, Governor Hochul will not finish her term. She's not being bipartisan. She's being ignorant. Runner-up Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, his state director of education, who is not the religious nut you saw virally who told Floridians to fight COVID, not with vaccines, but by asking Jesus. The director of education has told high schools to not offer advanced placement courses in African-American studies because the course is not, quote, historically accurate and adds it is not really educational and adds teaching it violates state's law. Now, why would he do that? Well, because DeSantis is a white supremacist and a fascist. You want a second opinion? He also doesn't own one suit that actually fits him. But the winner, the New York Times. Once again, it's as if the editors think there is a both sidesism and whataboutism shortage, and they have an exclusive stash of both. A reminder that about a quarter of all American debt was accrued under Trump's Republican presidency, yet now the Republicans want to renege on all American debt and, you know, crash the world economy by not raising the debt ceiling. And Democrats are, you know, trying to stop that, stop a world depression, stop the stock market from crashing. Well, how did the Times treat this seemingly stark contrast? Quote, 
Breaking news, the paper tweeted on its main account. The U.S. has hit its debt limit, raising economic fears and setting the stage for months of entrenched partisan warfare. The New York Times. All the whataboutism that's fit to print. Today's worst persons in the... Let's get a second opinion on this. In this Ohio diner. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. number one story on the countdown and it is fridays with thurber and thus the number one story on the countdown is fridays with james thurber many of the great writers great stories the short stories the fables have great meaning or symbolism and some of them are just great fun let me give you one of the latter from the thurber carnival it will explain itself fairly quickly the lady on 142 by james thurber 
the train was 20 minutes late, we found out, when we bought our tickets. So we sat down on a bench in the little waiting room of the Cornwall Bridge Station. It was too hot outside in the sun. This midsummer Saturday had got off to a sulky start, and now at 3 in the afternoon it sat sticky and restive in our laps. There were several others besides Sylvia and myself waiting for the train to get in from Pittsfield. An older woman who fanned herself with a daily news. A young lady in her 20s reading a book. A slender, tanned man sucking dreamily on the stem of an unlighted pipe. In the center of the room, leaning against a high iron radiator, a small girl stared at each of us in turn, her mouth open, as if she had never seen people before. The place had the familiar pleasant smell of railroad stations in the country, of something compounded of wood and leather and smoke. In the cramped space behind the ticket window, a telegraph instrument clicked intermittently, and once or twice a phone rang and the station master answered it briefly. I couldn't hear what he said. I was glad on such a day that we were going only as far as Gaylordsville, the third stop down the line, 22 minutes away. The station master had told us that our tickets were the first tickets to Gaylordsville he'd ever sold. I was idly pondering this small distinction when a train whistle blew in the distance. We all got to our feet, but the station master came out of his cubbyhole and told us it was not our train, but the 1245 from New York northbound. Presently, the train thundered in like a hurricane and sighed ponderously to a stop. The station master went out into the platform and came back after a minute or two. The train got heavily underway again for Canaan. I was opening a pack of cigarettes when I heard the station master talking on the phone again. This time, his words came out clearly. He kept repeating one sentence. He was saying, Conductor Reagan on 142 has the lady the office was talking about. The person on the other end of the line did not appear to get the meaning of the sentence. The station master repeated it and hung up. For some reason, I figured that he did not understand it either. Sylvia's eyes had the lost, reflective look they wear when she's trying to remember in what box she packed the Christmas tree ornaments. The expressions on the faces of the older woman, the young lady, and the man with the pipe had not changed. The little staring girl had gone away. Our train was not due for another five minutes, and I sat back and began trying to reconstruct the lady on 142, the lady conductor Reagan had, the lady the office was asking about. I moved nearer to Sylvia and whispered, See if the trains are numbered in your timetable. She got the timetable out of her handbag and looked at it. 142, she said, is the 1245 from New York. This was the train that had gone by a few minutes before. The woman was taken sick, said Sylvia. They're probably arranging to have a doctor or her family meet her. The older woman looked around at her briefly. The young woman, who had been chewing gum, stopped chewing. The man with the pipe seemed oblivious. I lighted a cigarette and sat thinking. The woman on 142, I said to Sylvia, flatly, might be almost anything, but she is definitely not sick. The only person who did not stare at me was the man with the pipe. 
Sylvia gave me her temperature-taking look, a cross between anxiety and vexation. Just then, our train whistled and we all stood up. I picked up our two bags and Sylvia took the sack of string beans we had picked up for the Connells. When the train came clanking in, I said in Sylvia's ear, He'll sit near us. You watch. Who? Who will? She said. The stranger, I told her. The man with the pipe. Sylvia laughed. He's not a stranger, she said. He works for the breeds. I was certainly that he did not work for the breeds. Women like to place people. Every stranger reminds them of somebody. The man with the pipe was sitting three seats in front of us across the aisle when we got settled. I indicated him with a nod of my head. Sylvia took a book out of the top of her overnight bag and opened it. What's the matter with you? She demanded. I looked around before replying. A sleepy man and woman sat across from us. Two middle-aged women in the seat in front of us were discussing the severe griping pain one of them had experienced as a result of inflamed diverticulitis. A slim, dark-eyed young woman sat in the seat behind us. She was alone. The trouble with women, I began, is that they explain everything by illness. I have a theory that we could be celebrating the 12th of May or even the 16th of April as Independence Day if Mrs. Jefferson hadn't got the idea her husband had a fever and put him to bed. Sylvia found her place in the book. We've been all through that before, she said. Why couldn't the woman on 142 be sick? That was easy, I told her. Conductor Reagan, I said, got off the train at Cornwall Bridge and spoke to the station master. I've got the woman the office was asking about, he said. Sylvia cut in. He said lady. I gave the little laugh that annoys her. All conductors say lady, I explained. Now, if a woman had got sick on the train, Reagan would have said, a woman got sick on my train, tell the office. What must have happened is that Reagan found somewhere between Kent and Cornwall Bridge a woman the office had been looking for. Sylvia did not close her book, but she looked up. Maybe she got sick before she got on the train and the office was worried, said Sylvia. She was not giving the problem close attention. If the office knew she got on the train... I said patiently, they wouldn't have asked Reagan to let them know if he found her. They would have told him about her when she got on. Sylvia resumed her reading. Let's stay out of it, she said. It isn't any of our business. I hunted for my chicklets, but couldn't find them. It might be everybody's business, I said. Every patriot's. I know, I know, said Sylvia. You think she's a spy. Well, I think she's sick. I ignored that. Every conductor on the line has been asked to look out for her. I said, Reagan found her. She won't be met by her family. She'll be met by the FBI. Or the OPA, said Sylvia. Alfred Hitchcock things don't happen on the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. I saw the conductor coming from the other end of the couch. 
I'm going to tell the conductor, I said, that Reagan on 142 has got the woman. No, you're not, said Sylvia. You're not going to get us in mixed up in this. He probably knows anyway. The conductor, short, stocky, silver-haired, and silent, took up our tickets. He looked like a kindly ickies. Sylvia, who had stiffened, relaxed when I let him go by without a word about the woman on 142. He looks exactly as if he knew where the Maltese falcon is hidden, doesn't he? said Sylvia with the laugh that annoys me. Nevertheless, I pointed out, you said a little while ago that he probably knows about the woman on 142. If she's just sick, why should they tell the conductor on this train? I'll rest more easily when I know that they've actually got her. Sylvia kept reading as if she hadn't heard me. I leaned my head against the back of the seat and closed my eyes. The train was slowing down noisily and a brakeman was yelling, Can't! Can't! When I felt a small, cold pressure against my shoulder. Oh, the voice of the woman in the seat behind me said, I've dropped my copy of Coronet under your seat. She leaned closer and her voice became low and hard. Get off here, mister she said. We're going to Gaylordsville, I said. You and your wife are getting off here, mister, she said. I reached for the suitcases on the rack. What do you want, for heaven's sake, asked Sylvia. We're, uh, getting off here, I told her. Are you really crazy, she demanded. This is only Kent. Come on, sister, said the woman's voice. You take the overnight bag and the beans. You take the big bag, mister. Sylvia was furious. I knew you'd get us into this, she said to me, shouting about spies at the top of your voice. That made me angry. You're the one who mentioned spies, I told her. I didn't. You kept talking about it and talking about it, said Sylvia. Come on, get off, the two of you, said the cold, hard voice. We got off. As I helped Sylvia down the steps, I said, we know too much. Oh, shut up she said. We didn't have far to go. A big black limousine waited a few steps away. Behind the wheel sat a heavy set foreigner with cruel lips and small eyes. He scowled when he saw us. The boss don't want nobody up there, he said. It's all right, Carl, said the woman. Get in, she told us. We climbed into the back seat. She sat between us with the gun in her hand. It was a handsome, jeweled derringer. Alice will be waiting for us at Gaylordsville, said Sylvia, in all this heat. The house was a long, low, rambling building reached at the end of a poplar-lined drive. Never mind the bags, said the woman. Sylvia took the string beans and her book, and we got out. Two huge mastiffs came bounding off the terrace, snarling. Down, Mata, said the woman. Down, Pedro. They slunk away still snarling. Sylvia and I sat side by side on a sofa in a large, handsomely appointed living room. Across from us, in a chair, lounged a tall man with heavily lidded black eyes and long, sensitive fingers. Against the door through which we had entered the room leaned a thin, undersized young man with his hands in the pockets of his coat and a cigarette hanging from his lower lip. He had a drawn, sallow face, and his small, half-closed eyes stared at us incuriously. In a corner of the room, a squat, swarthy man twiddled with the dials of a radio, 
The woman paced up and down, smoking a cigarette in a long holder. "'Well, Gail,' said the lounging man in a soft voice, "'to what do we owe this unexpected visit?' Gail kept pacing. "'They got Sandra,' she said finally. The lounging man did not change expression. "'Who got Sandra, Gail?' he asked softly. "'Reagan, on one four two, said Gail. The squat, swarthy man jumped to his feet. "'All the time Egypt say, kill this Reagan!' he shouted. "'All the time Egypt say, bump off this Reagan!' The lounging man did not look at him. "'Sit down, Egypt,' he said quietly. The swarthy man sat down. Gale went on talking. "'The punk here shot off his mouth,' he said. "'He was wise.' I looked at the man leaning against the door. "'She means you,' said Sylvia, who laughed. "'The dame was dumb,' Gail went on. "'She thought the lady on the train was sick.' Now I laughed. "'She means you,' I said to Sylvia. "'The punk was blowing his top all over the train,' said Gail. "'I had to bring him along.' Sylvia, who had the beans on her lap, began breaking and stringing them. "'Well, my dear lady,' said the lounging man, "'a most homely little touch.' "'What's a touch?' demanded Egypt. "'Touch,' I told him. Gail sat down in a chair. "'Who's going to rub him out?' she asked. "'Freddy,' said the lounging man. Egypt was on his feet again. "'Nah, nah!' he shouted. "'Not the punk! The punk bump off the last six, seven people!' The lounging man looked at him. Egypt paled and sat down. "'I thought you were the punk,' said Sylvia. I looked at her coldly. "'I know where I have seen you before,' I said to the lounging man. "'It was at Zagreb in 1927. Tilden took you in straight sets. Six love, six love, six love!' The man's eyes glittered. "'I think I bump off this man myself,' he said." Freddy walked over and handed the lounging man an automatic. At this moment, the door Freddy had been leaning against burst open, and in rushed the man with the pipe, shouting, Gale! 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 Gaylordsville! Gaylordsville! bawled the brakeman. Sylvia was shaking me by the arm. Quit moaning, she said. Everybody's looking at you. I rubbed my forehead with a handkerchief. Hurry up, she said, Sylvia said. They don't stop here long. I pulled the bags down and, and we got off. Have you got the beans? I asked Sylvia. Alice Connell was waiting for us. On the way to their home in the car, Sylvia began to tell Alice about the woman on 142. I didn't say anything. He thought she was a spy, said Sylvia. They both laughed. She probably got sick on the train, said Alice. They were probably arranging for a doctor to meet her at the station. That's just what I told him, said Sylvia. I lighted a cigarette. The lady on 142, I said firmly, was definitely not sick. Oh, Lord, said Sylvia. Here we go again. The Lady on 142 by James Thurber. 
Countdown has come to you from the studios of Alberman Broadcasting Empire World Headquarters in the Sports Capsule Building here in New York. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. And our announcer today was Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad. Everything else is pretty much my fault, except the Thurber. That's countdown for this, the 745th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. The next scheduled countdown, Monday. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.